You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Bent Flubier, who is a professor at both Oxford and the IT University of Copenhagen. And also, at one point, you were a professor of planning. I don't, I don't know if you're still a professor of planning, but I didn't even know there was such a thing. Right? <laughs> I mean, is there a department of planning? We'll have to talk about that. But also the author of a couple books. The most recent book is called How Big Things Get Done. The Surprising Factors That Determine the Fate of Every Project from home renovations to space exploration and everything in between. I also have another of your books from way back called Rationality and Power, Democracy in Practice. Welcome, Ben. Thank you very much, Greg. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, I really enjoyed this book, How Big Things Get Done. And I don't know, it's kind of something in the field of behavioral political science. I don't know, behavioral organization theory. That might be redundant. You talk about how large initiatives and even small initiatives, they rarely get completed <laughs> within the time and the budget that we hope for and that we estimate for. And this is a result of psychological factors, uh, of course, but also political factors, right? And I like how you combine the two and you say that for smaller projects or maybe self-directed projects, it's more psychology. As you get to bigger and bigger projects and projects that involve lots and lots of different players, then the politics takes over. But both of these are involved. And I think the statistics that you cite are that only about 8.5% of these large projects get completed on time and on budget. And only 0.5% get completed on time, on budget, and with the performance standards that they were hoping for. So these are pretty shocking numbers. And for me, when I have, do a home project and I get an estimate from a contractor and they give me an estimate, as a statistician, I'm always thinking, oh, so that must be the mean. <laughs> and of course, it's never the mean. It's always like the bare minimum. So maybe, I don't know where to start here, but maybe start by asking, is this a field like project science? Well, I don't think people call it project science, but project management is definitely a field. It's a huge field, actually, both uh, in practice and also in academia. I think more of my work is decision-making. So this is about decision-making, and you're right in pointing out the behavioral aspects. So decision-making about very big capital investments in all sorts of different fields is what it's about. And when you refer to your own situation when you have a remodeling of your home, a renovation of your home, and some builder comes in and gives you a quote. The real cynics there say that this is a down payment. It's not definitely not a mean, it's not even a minimum. It's just a down payment that this is just to get you started. Like when you buy something in installments and you're buying your home renovation in installments and whatever the quote is, is your first installment. And then you go on from there. And 50% cost increase is not uncommon on jobs like that. And way above that is not uncommon. Either. I would say the average cost overrun of a home renovation is somewhere between 30 and 50%. And that means that you'll find many instances where it will be much more than that, including 100% and above. Right now, I'm actually having someone work on a project in my home, <laughs> not too far from where I'm sitting. And 
It's very frustrating because the folks who are doing the project, I was asking for a drawing. I was asking to see a plan and, and then they wouldn't give me a plan. They, they wouldn't give me a drawing. <laughs> they just said, oh, we're just going to do it. And in my experience, when there's no drawing and there's no plan, the bad things happen. And uh, I recently had some curtain rods installed and again, no drawing, no plan. And of course it took way longer. And so I think one of the lessons that you offer up is without using this phrase, measure twice, cut once. Or I think Abe Lincoln had a similar one. If you give me five minutes to cut down a tree, I'm going to spend three minutes sharpening my ax. Why is it that people underestimate the importance of planning? Because we are hardwired to do it. There's something called the planning fallacy that we all have. And the planning fallacy specifically when it first was formulated was about time. So it's about us underestimating time. And it proved that our brains are wired in a way where we consistently underestimate time. It's very easy to demonstrate. We all know it from our own lives. And again and again, even though we know that it happens, we just step right into the trap. And that's the way it is with a lot of these uh, cognitive biases, as they are called, uh, including the planning fallacy, which has later been expanded. I did a paper with Cass Sunstein of Harvard University where we expanded the planning fallacy and we call it the planning fallacy writ large because we don't only do this in regards to time. We actually do it with anything, including cost and benefits also. So we should uh, look at the planning fallacy as something more general than just applying to time. And the only way to get beyond a bias like that is to first become conscious about it. But that's not even enough. It helps some. You might get rid of a bit of your errors or your biases by being conscious about them. But you actually need to very proactively start using debiasing techniques of which we and others have developed some that we find that for us it's in project management that we now have lots of uh, colleagues and practitioners around the world using these tools and finding that you can actually overcome the planning fallacy. You can short circuit it by not thinking too much about what you're doing, but just use empirical data. So for you, if you are doing home renovation, let's say you are installing a new kitchen. Instead of trying to figure out what it's going to cost and asking the builder to do an estimate of how many square meters of tiling, how many cabinets, and how many handles of this type, et cetera, et cetera. And then putting unit costs up on them and multiplying by the number you need, and then adding all this up into a total and getting a wrong number, because that number is going to be impacted by the planning fallacy and optimism. Uh, instead of that, you just like ask your colleagues, your friends, your family, anybody who has had a kitchen renovation done the last five, 10 years. And you just ask them either how much did it cost, but even better, get a relative number. Ask how much did it go over budget? How much did it go over schedule? Let's say you ask 15 friends and family about that. You just add up the numbers you get. So they, will, they will vary a lot, but you just add them up and check the average. Then you apply that number as an adjustment to what your builder says. So you don't believe that first number. You don't believe it's a mean. Now you adjust it with something that will actually make it the mean because you take this estimate from the builder that is impacted by optimism and the planning fallacy. And now you actually eliminate optimism bias and the planning fallacy by having actual numbers for what happened on actual kitchen renovations amongst your friends and family, right? That's the way to go about it. This is a hobby way to go about it. So we have developed very hardcore tools, statistical tools, where you can do this for multi-billion dollar projects where we have the empirical data that are relevant for debiasing very large projects, including transport infrastructure, water projects, IT projects, 
mining projects, wind power projects, other energy projects, et cetera, et cetera. And like I said, these are being used all over the world now, producing better forecasts because of the debiasing. And you don't have to take my word for this. This has been independently uh, documented that the, the forecasts are more accurate. So the planning fallacy, it's related to this idea of the inside view, right? Where you view the project that you're undertaking as unique, right? As one of a kind, right? And I guess the question is, why would the overestimation of the distinctiveness of the project lead to systematic underestimation of the time and money it's going to take as opposed to a symmetric error, right? You could just as easily overestimate its complication and overestimate its difficulty as underestimate. So it's kind of an overestimation of its uniqueness combined with a bias in the direction of optimism. Yep, that's exactly correct. And it is surprising when you first start looking at these data and you would expect just from the way we have learned to think about statistics and errors and so on, we would think about it as random errors. And as you say, they are symmetrical. And that means that you would overestimate as often as you would underestimate, let's say, schedule. And that is definitely not the case when you look at it. There are like uh, a lot more underestimates of the schedule than there are overestimates. Of the overestimates. So this is clearly not a random error that is going on here. It is a bias, as the psychologists have established. And the uniqueness bias, which is an additional, we've already talked now about optimism bias, the planning fallacy, and here comes the uniqueness bias. And actually there are dozens and dozens of biases like this that impact our behavior. Uniqueness bias, the way that it impacts our behavior is that it makes us not look at other projects. So actually uniqueness bias is a pretty mean bias in the sense that it makes us ignore reality. Because you think my project is unique, you have no reason to look at other projects and go out and search knowledge about what happened in other projects because it's irrelevant per definition because you think your project is unique, right? That's really dangerous. So it basically opens the door to the optimism. I was thinking in finance, when we're valuing companies, we'll often use comparables, right? Or we're, when we're valuing real estate, we'll use comparables. And I was just teaching this in my finance class recently. People were saying, well, why would you use like the median say price to earnings ratio, when every company is unique, why don't you find the one company that is most like your company and then apply that multiple? And I think the response to that, even though in theory that sounds right, the response to that would be, well, if you allow yourself to pick that one comparable, then you're probably going to pick the one that gives you the number that subconsciously want to find, right? It introduces a degree of freedom that, that allows your bias to kind of take over. Exactly. And that's what you want to avoid. Basically, you don't want to think the more you allow your brain to work, the more biases you're going to have. If you allow your brain to work in this manner where it's trying to figure out things for this specific project, if you allow your brain to work in collecting data on similar projects where it's an empirical fact that these data had the performance that they did, and now you use this empirical fact as your base rates for what you're doing, then you're doing the right thing. Then you're thinking the right way. But if you're thinking the conventional way where you're trying to understand things inside out, you, you understand your product from the inside without taking other products into account, that's when you open the doors for all these cognitive biases that we have because you have to make everything up, right? So your mind will make it up and the mind is very good at making things up. And that's what you have to be careful about when you are working with big investment decisions. Well, I like how when you ask somebody how long their commute is, they'll often say, well, it's 30 minutes when there's no traffic. 
<laughs> you say, well, how often is there no traffic? Well, never, right? And so you're gravitating towards kind of the, the reality <laughs> that they want to be true. But you also mentioned that even if we have a good estimate of the average, right? We're objective. We've looked at the data. We've found the right group of comparables. And then we come up with an average. That's not enough because we tend to then think in terms of normal distribution and the distribution is not normal. You call it fat tails, but really, I guess what you're saying is it's skewed because the tails on the left end are typically not that fat. It's the tails on the right end that are really fat. When we get overruns, we get really big overruns sometimes. That is correct, that you can't just look at the average. Basically, we find that the vast majority of capital investment decisions and projects are fat-tailed in their performance, and that's both for cost and for schedule and for benefits. And of course, where the fat-tail is depends on what variable you're looking at. So for costs, it's the upper tail that's fat. So you have more cost overruns than you have underruns. And therefore, the distribution is both skewed and fat-tailed. For statistician, it means that kurtosis and skewness is high. And the same with schedule, same pattern as cost. But for benefits, it'll be the opposite. You actually have fewer benefits overrun than you have underrun. So the fat tail is on the left side instead of the, the right side of the distribution. But again, the distribution is skewed and it is fat tail. So that's what we struggle with. And, and most people have simply not taken statistics classes where they know how to do statistical analysis of, on fat tail distribution. They don't, most people know what a mean and variance is, right? But most people actually don't know what skewness and kurtosis is, and, and certainly not how to use it in a statistical test, not to even speak of the alpha values of Pareto distribution and so on, which is even more long-haired and difficult. So basically, you have a group of people, the experts, and this is both practitioners and academics, actually, who are supposed to be dealing with these things, who don't understand the statistics of these things. And not only do they not understand the statistics of these things, they think they know the statistics of these things because they all took Statistic 101, right? And then they apply Statistics 101, which is based on averages and standard deviations on the performance of these investments. And it all goes to hell because all of a sudden you think you have an analysis of the risk, but you don't. It's actually worse than having no analysis because now you have an analysis that you actually think is the analysis of risk, but it's totally misleading. Not just a little, it's very misleading. And you're worse off listening to the people who did this analysis, then you would be having no analysis at all. But of course, you'll be much better off having people who actually understand how to do fat tail risk analysis. People like Nassim Nicholas Talit, people like Mandel Broads and so on, uh, people like Daniel Kahneman, they, they understand uh, what fat tails are about and what they do to us, but the vast majority of people have no clue and they think they do. That's the problem. Now, when I think of fat tails, I think, of course, of financial markets. And the reason why you have these fat tails is because of these feedback loops, right? Because of these interdependencies, because of complexity. And when you see the fat tails in the project world, it's also because of these, these interdependencies where, you know, the probability of an error in any one dimension is not independent of the probability of an error in any other dimension, right? So can projects be made more complex or less complex. I really loved your insight about modularity and how modular projects, it's less likely that a hiccup in one area is going to impact the other ones. Yeah. The answer is that you, you can make a project less complex. So first you're right in observing that 
fat cells are generated because of interdependencies and complexity. And this, this can be both technical interdependencies, but also social interdependencies. You know, when we do projects, it's not just a technical thing. It's also a social thing. Lots of people are working on big projects and there's lots of technology used. So you'll have both technological interdependencies and you'll have social and even political interdependencies on these types of projects generating this kind of complexity. The way out of this, and this is something we, is, we just touched upon it in the book. We started this, uh, we were actually starting to do the empirical analysis. So I included some of it in the book and it's really resonated with people. There's been a lot of response to this. Now we're going into much more depth with much more rigor. And what the data show is that modular projects have less complexity and perform much better. So your cost overruns are much more, smaller. Your schedule overruns are much smaller and your benefits overruns are larger. So you get more benefits. And modularity introduces the kind of standardization into projects. So it's not so difficult to understand that when things are modular, you don't have to think about what's inside the box. You just need to know what the module is and that it interfaces with other modules in the way that works. It's just like Lego. That's actually what we call it in the book. And the thing that I actually seriously ask of all the many managers and leaders that I work with, I'm asking them, what's your Lego? If you don't have a Lego, you have a problem. And you need to know what your Lego is. You need to develop your thinking about what you're doing in projects and, and capital investments in a way where you actually have a Lego that you're using as a basic building block, maybe several Legos that you're using as basic building blocks to build your projects. Maybe the most clear example I can give of this is solar energy, which is hugely successful and is scaling up at an insane speed right now all over the world. It's completely modular. The solar cell is born modular because the solar cell, just the word the cell, likes the Lego. That's the Lego. That's your solar cell. It's tiny. And uh, you put a bunch of these cells on a panel. You have a solar panel, also a Lego. So you use one Lego to build another Lego. Now you put a lot of these panels next to each other and link them up. Now you have a solar array. That's called an array. Again, this is a, a mod. Now we've got, gone up three steps. So we're just scaling this thing up, but based on the same basic Lego, right? So first one Lego, then we have a second Lego, the panel. Now we have the array. That's the third Lego. Then we use arrays. We just put up a lot of arrays. Now we have a solar farm. That's the fourth level. And if you don't have enough energy, which we don't in just one solar farm, obviously, we build lots of solar farms, which is exactly what's happening now. That's the fifth level up. But it's all just based on this one Lego. You just replicate what you're doing. And when you do that, you get really good at it. You're just doing the same thing over and over again. When you do that, you get something called positive learning curves. The costs come down. That's the positive learning curve. And solar has the steepest positive learning curve that we know of right now. So a lot of things have positive learning curves, but solar has particularly steep positive learning curve, meaning that the costs are coming down over time and we do it faster. Speeds ramps up and cost ramps down. That's a beautiful combination. That's exactly what we want when we're doing things. So that's what modularity does for you. Wind farms, the same thing. So built on wind turbines, which basically consist of four basic elements. Foundation, tower, nacelle, that's the turbine, and blades. Boom, you're done. When you build these giant mills, windmills, within 24 hours today, that used to take months to build uh, at the outset. It used to take months to build uh, turbines that were much smaller. Now, 24 hours to get them up, and they're all manufactured in factories, which makes it very economical. At the other end of the scale, you have non-modularity. So things that are bespoke, like you build a piece of uh, 
signature architecture where the architect really gets to unfold their imagination and so on. It's a one-off thing. Everything is bespoke. Or a nuclear power plant, they are also uh, bespoke and they're built on site. They're not built in factories. They're basically, things are welded and done on site. It's a very classical example of construction sites. And you can make anything efficient uh, and modular if you have a construction site. You need to bring it into factories in order to do that. So we need to get rid of the construction site and make it into an assembly site where we assemble the Legos that I'm talking about. And only if you do that will you be successful and have positive learning curves and high-performing projects. So this is what I tell the construction industry. You need to get rid of the construction side. It's a hard one to swallow for the construction industry because they identify with that. But what I'm saying is you will not make it into the 20th century. I'm not even talking about the 21st century. I'm saying you're not going to make it into the 20th century, which is the century of industrialization, standardization, manufacturing until you standardize construction, meaning that you need to manufacture your Legos and bring them on site to assemble them, not to build them. Well, I talk a lot about Legos in in my classes, but usually in the context of business models and IT. And of course, having a Danish person talk about Legos (laughs) is pretty natural. But I, I think some people might think that bespoke, it's really bespoke versus standard. When you have these standard building blocks, then this makes bespokeness a whole lot easier, right? You use the example of the Empire State Building. This is a -a one-of-a-kind building, but it's made of of these standard components that they would just stack on top of one another, right? Yes. So uh, we described uh, the Empire State Building in the book, the whole process, and why it was so successful. It was built in 14 months. It's incredible to think they were building... 10 stories a week when they really got into it. So they had positive learning curves and they basically said, no, we didn't build a 102-story skyscraper. We just built the same story 102 times, you know. And, and of course, the first story that they built, that was a bit difficult, like most things we do the first time. But already on the second, they could use what they learned on the first one. And then the third faster, the fourth faster. And after they got to around 10 stories or so, they really, they really had learned how to do this and they could go up really fast. So that's the explanation that they could build it so fast that they just thought out this one story, which was the standard building block, and they did it over and over. And also, they had totally nailed down what goes into building one story, like what are, how many windows, how many stones of this kind, how, many, how much cladding for the facade or whatever. They actually had built the project on paper in detail before they built it in reality. And that's actually the secret. So when you mentioned earlier, you couldn't get a drawing. I'm telling you, nobody would have started the, the Empire State Building without getting a drawing. It was all totally specified in drawings and lists on what needed to go into each and every story of the building and when that material needed to be on the site in order for the builders to assemble it. It was already an assembly site at that stage. They, they understood this more than 100 years ago it's pretty thought-provoking when you think about it. And a lot of builders today don't, still don't get it. Well, you, you, you have one chapter where you contrast the Frank Gehry's uh, Bilbao Museum and the Sydney Opera House. <laughs> I, I can't think of two buildings that are more opposite in terms of their construction approach, right? Where one is planned down to the dot of the I and the cross of the T, and the other one's just a let's go in and start winging it, right? Yes. So the two buildings are very similar in the sense that they are architectural marvels, right? And I think they together actually are considered the two most 
exquisite buildings of the last century or something like that. And we know that the Sydney Opera House is the only building that got UNESCO heritage status while the architect was still alive. That has never happened before. That's usually very old buildings that are historic. But both buildings are exquisite. But that's where the similarity ends, you know, as you say, that they were built so differently. Actually, in Sydney, they started building before they knew what they were going to build. They actually didn't have the drawing. So they did like your builder wants to do. But for an opera house, say, hey, just start building. Just start digging. That's actually a slogan you often hear in the construction industry. And that's exactly what they did at Benelong Point, where the Sydney Opera House is located. They just started digging without knowing uh, exactly what they were going to build. And of course, when you do that, comes back as a boomerang and hits you in many ways. And one of the most dramatic ones uh, was that they actually had to dynamite part of the opera house. After it had been built, they had to dynamite it in order to get it back into accordance with the drawings that the architect has made. And I mean, you can, it's easy to understand if you build like that, it's going to be very slow and very costly. And indeed, the Sydney Opera House went 10 years over schedule and 1,400% over budgets, whereas the Guggenheim Bilbao Museum was built on schedule, actually finished a few weeks before the opening. And it was built at slightly under budget. The budget was $100 million, which is not even expensive for a building like that. And it was delivered at $97 million, so slightly under budget. And I would say that the Guggenheim Bilbao is an even more complex design than the Sydney Opera House, even though both are very complex. But Gary thought it all through exactly like the Empire State Building before he started building. He's probably the best builder I know that understands how to use IT to simulate his buildings before he builds them. So he can make all the mistakes on the computer before they go out and build in reality so that they don't have to make the mistakes in reality. And it's really cheap to make mistakes on the computer compared to making the mistakes in reality, which is obvious to most people. And you want to make the mistakes on the computer and not in reality. That's what Gary does. That explains his fast delivery times and his delivery on budget. Well, another contrast you throw up is how Pixar makes movies versus Heaven's Gate, right? (laughs) Which is the, let's just start filming and see how it goes, right? Yeah, that's actually quite common. It's shocking when you read I, I think it's fascinating to read about how people do projects in different industries. And I think that the Hollywood is one of the most interesting industries of the film industry in, in general. And if you look at it historically there, historically, there are many, many instances where people just start shooting and see how it goes. Pixar is the exact opposite of that. They do like Gary. And it's very interesting, actually, yeah, Pixar's way of planning and Gary's way of planning, even though they're doing completely different products. One is architectural marvels and the other is film marvels their process is the same with the they simulate their product before they actually start doing it in reality they understand this is how to do it and this is how to save a lot of money and pixar has actually found a sweet spot they don't want the budgets to go over that they find that the movies actually don't get better by throwing more money at them above a certain limit it actually gets worse and the money does no good so you actually you need to have your process in place and money will not solve your problems if you don't do it. It's one lesson. But basically, Pixar uh, is going through eight or nine iterations of the film 
in increasing detail from just having an idea on one page to have a 125 page manuscript to having storyboards, just a, you know, a dozen, a few dozen storyboards to having thousands of storyboards and filming it on their iPhones and putting in just their own voices and their own music on and so on. So that they totally know what they're doing once they go out and hire the really expensive people, the famous actors that are doing the voices in most Pixar movies and use the expensive technology where you're actually shooting the film on the computers that that do animation. And you get the expensive composers to compose the score for the film and so on. That's only much, much later when they've done the film eight, nine times already. So they just do it the 10th time now. And then that's the final version, but they really know what they're doing. That's the secret. And no other studio in more than a hundred years of Hollywood history has had this many blockbusters, like one blockbuster after another 20 plus times now. It doesn't happen. And therefore, it's completely certain that this is not just by luck. You can't get that many uh, movies uh, as success blockbusters by luck. There's a methodology to it. And in the book, we uncover that methodology And we say that you can use this methodology in what you're doing because there are some basic principles here and it's think things through before you do them, simulate things before you do them, experiment with things before you do them, iterate things before you do them, replicate things before you do them. On the computer or in reality, Gary is using both physical models and computer models and sometimes mock-ups, which are one-to-one models that they just rent a field somewhere and then they go build what they're building to see what does this actually look like in reality. And they do all these things as preparation. And only when they know what they're going to do in, in detail will they actually go out and deliver the product itself, whether it's a building or it's a movie with Pixar. We, we call it in the book, think slow, act fast. So you need this slow process up front. For Gary, it's typically a couple of years For Pixar, same thing, where you really think things through before you go out and build them. And if you don't do that, you'll be forced to act slow because all the problems that you didn't deal with during the planning phase are going to come back to haunt you during the delivery phase. That's why delivery for the Sydney Opera House was so long, whereas delivery for the Guggenheim Bilbao was so short. In Sydney, every problem in the book came back to bite them and they had to deal with it on the construction site which is exactly where you don't want it. So I think, I mean, the idea is that every dollar you spend on planning saves you a a lot more than a dollar on execution. But look, I can see how somebody might read a one paragraph summary of your book and get it completely wrong, right? Here in Silicon Valley, everyone says, bias for action, right? Don't spend time drawing up a business plan. Get out there and start making and get the stuff in front of the customer. There's this exercise that I do a lot with executives that you're probably familiar with, this famous marshmallow tower exercise. And the takeaway, of, of course, is that, you know, you don't want to be spending 90% of your time planning and 10% of your time building because then you don't have an opportunity to learn. And I think people might take away from that, oh, well, we don't want to have a bias for action. But the lesson really is completely in line with what you're suggesting, which is that you know, you have to start the learning right away, right? And the folks who are proponents of the lean startup approach, that's exactly what you're doing. You're failing cheaply instead of failing expensively, right? And so before you actually invest huge amounts, uh, there's an example that I use in in my class, which is the uh, contrast between Webvan and Instacart, right? And Webvan took billions of dollars of investor money and 
it all disappeared because they thought that they couldn't ship their first bag of groceries until they had warehouses and trucks and all this stuff. And then that's when they shipped and that's when they realized that they got it all wrong. So uh, what do you say to some of these Silicon Valley types who would say, bias for action, get out there, right? They might say, McClelland wanted to plan every battle and so he never did any fighting. Exactly. When we wrote the book, we actually shared that there should be a misunderstanding about the book that people would say, oh, we are arguing for all this planning. This is exactly the opposite of agile, right? And lean. So we would be like dinosaurs. <laughs> but luckily, it has not happened. Actually, and we make quite an effort in the book to explain why the two approaches are similar. So why agile is similar to what we do and why uh, minimum viable product is, is similar to what we do. However, we make a distinction that people in Silicon Valley often don't make, but I think it's really important. That is between reversible and non-reversible decisions. This is what Amazon refers to as the one-way and two-way doors, right? Exactly. And, and Amazon actually gets this. They're intelligent about this. They understand that if you have a reversible decision, like a two-way door, like just go through it and you go back, you know, if it doesn't work, just... You can do it with the minimal viable product, provided that there's no safety issues and stuff. It is a problem when people take this approach and, and start applying it in, in industries where it doesn't work like that, where there are safety issues or you can't just uh, roll back that it's a one-way door. So Serranos is a, a good example of this, I think, that they were using the Silicon Valley software model for developing medical devices for blood tests, right? Not a good idea because the rules and regulations, safety standards, and so on are completely different. Uh, and it's a mistake to use the model there. We say the same thing that if you're building a, a skyscraper or you're building California high-speed rail, as is happening now, you can't just experiment. You don't put a minimum viable product out for California high-speed rail, you know, and then see what happens, and then you just abandon the high-speed rail line if it doesn't work. It doesn't work like that. For non-reversible decision, we recommend instead of a minimum viable product, we recommend a minimum virtual product that you actually... Maximum virtual product, right? Yeah, excellent. Exactly. Maximum virtual. Thank you for correcting me there. That, that could have gotten very wrong. A maximum virtual product where we say you need to max out in, in virtual space, in simulating your product before you go real, right? And when it's non-reversible, you really need to understand what you're doing when it's non-reversible because you cannot reverse it. So you need to know that once you go through that door, you did the right thing. You have the right thing in your hand, the right product in your hand. And that's what the maximum uh, virtual product will, will guarantee for you. That's what Pixar does. That's what Gary does. That's what the other intelligent success stories that we study and describe in the book do, and that's what you need to do if you're doing a project that is non-reversible. But for the reversible products, by all means, experiment without going through all this planning first, that's fine. That's also, I think Amazon refers to it, they use the PRFAQ process, right? Which is doing as much as you can, right, on paper and getting feedback before you actually start making major investments, right? That's what we, in the book, we call that thinking from right to left. And the PRFAQ, which stands for a press release, is the PR and FAQ stands, of course, for frequently asked questions. Immediately when Amazon has an idea for a new idea, they say, okay, before we go any further, could somebody please sit down and write a press release for how are we going to launch this product the day that we're just now imagining in our heads that we already have the product? How do we describe it to the public, to the journalists who are coming tomorrow for the press meeting? 
And what questions are they going to ask and how are we going to answer those? That's the FAQ. This is a way to jump way into the future and imagine your product is already finished, right? That's the right side of the project planning chart. When you see project planning chart, they usually move from left to right. Amazon make this leap straight to the right at first to develop a clear idea of what is it actually we're going to end up with. And then they work their way back. That's what they call think backwards at Amazon. And we call it think from right to left in our book, that, uh, that it's about, you need to ask why you're doing a project and you're putting that out on the right of your, of your project planning diagram. And then no matter where you are, when you start delivering the project, you always know, or if you don't know, you look at the diagram and you know what you're going to end up with. And, and, and by always knowing what it is that you're going to end up with, you have a pretty strong steer on what you're doing because you can decide is what I'm doing right now going to contribute to what we want to end up with? Or is it not? If it's not, you abandon it and do something else that actually will contribute. If it does contribute, you just continue what you're doing. So you get a, a good steer where everybody knows what they're doing. And that's what you need to have a successful team delivering your product. Now, look, we've been talking only about kind of psychology, but the book spends an equal amount of time on politics, right? And I had some foundation work done recently. And of course, I picked the company with the lowest estimate. <laughs> Once they came in, they started saying, well, you, you got a window here. We need to replace the window. It's, you did a walk around. You saw that window. But you know, once they've got you, then they can start jacking up the prices because you're stuck. And so you, know, you talk about strategic misrepresentation. I had an old professor of mine who worked in the White House under the Bush administration. And one of his tasks was to estimate the cost of invading and occupying a foreign country. And his numbers were unacceptable because they were too high, right? So he had to go back to the drawing board and come up with a much lower number in order to get the project through. This is, seems to be pervasive, this idea of lowballing things. Why do people fall for it? Well, there's a lot of organizational pressure. Sometimes they don't fall for it. They have to. They are forced by the bosses upstairs to do it because maybe they did what you're what the, the person in the White House that you described did that they came up with the budget and then they were just told this is too high, this is too high. We're not going to get approval for this. So you need to adjust it down. And then that's your job and 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 you do it. So that's not so much falling for it as being forced to do it. And there's a lot of that. There's a lot of organizational pressure. And it's both in the private sector and in, in the public sector. So this is not just a government thing. I've had the vice president of a huge IT company that you would know, but I'm not free to say who they are, honestly telling me here in Oxford that this is their business model, that they actually deliberately are, uh, oversell their products and then they just deal with it later when it comes back as uh, schedule overruns and cost overruns. Of course, the customers get very unhappy like you would, but hey, that's just the way it is. And his argument was, if we don't do it, we don't win the jobs and we need to be in business. So to be in business, we actually need to strategically misrepresent. It's very dangerous. I have to say, I teach my students that they have to be careful. Just don't do it because in this day and age with the legislation we have, you can actually end up in jail for doing this. This is actually misleading customers. And it might also be misleading your shareholders that you misrepresent what things are worth and what they cost and so on. So it used to be something that you could do until the Sarbanes-Oxley acts, you could do this without a great risk of uh, getting into legal trouble. You definitely cannot do it anymore without getting into le having a risk of getting into legal trouble. Actually, a CEO on a, and a big nuclear project in the U.S. recently went to jail because of this. 
Mm. But you can, if you're trying to get a project through, you can leverage the escalation of commitment. You can leverage the sunk cost fallacy. You were talking about the California high-speed rail project. I think there was a reason why they started in Bakersfield, right? Because they knew that the demand for it isn't in Bakersfield, right? So if they have half of it built in Bakersfield, then at that point, then there's going to be, hey, let's just finish it. One of my favorite examples of this, and I don't know if it's apocryphal, but the Philadelphia Museum of Art, it is, it's basically a C-shaped building and when they started the construction, they didn't have enough money to fund the entire construction. So they started construction from the outside, right? They started on the left wing and the right wing. And then everybody would drive past and see that it was missing a big chunk in the middle. And that's how they were able to shake down all the donors because <laughs> they would say, hey, do you want to have <laughs> these two disconnected parts or, or do you want to have an actual museum? Now, if they'd started in the middle... Then after they'd finished the middle part, the donors would have been like, that's good enough, right? So you can strategically right, right. manipulate people's motivations, right? Yeah, and people do that. I hope the same thing will happen for the California high-speed rail line, although I'm not certain. I think that they probably should have started building from Los Angeles towards San Francisco and from San Francisco towards Los Angeles in order to have people come in and say, hey, this doesn't make sense. We need to connect these two lines that are now going uh, in and out of Los Angeles and San Francisco. I, I'm not sure that people are going to pay enough attention to the line between Bakersfield and uh, Merced that they would actually think that, okay, then it needs to go to LA and to San Francisco. But we'll see. I, I hope I'm wrong. Now, you also talk about Albert Hirschman, and I am a big fan of Albert Hirschman, but I had not, I didn't know about this. And I didn't know about this book that he wrote, which seems to be an ode to serendipity, right? And he points out a couple examples of botched projects that led to something positive. Is there something to be said for, it's like primary research in a sense. When you try to do something that's new, you try to do something that's never been done before, maybe some kind of fantastic learning will, will come out of it. But of course, there's no data in his book. It's just a bunch of anecdotes. Yeah, he just has a, a few, I think he has about 11 projects that are from very different geographies and that are examples of his thesis. But of course, that's not a statistical test. So what we do in the book is we actually submit Hirschman's thesis to a statistical test where we look at more than 2,000 projects, the same type of projects that Hirschman looked at, but we just get a real sample and uh, we find that his thesis only applies for a minority of projects, so one out of five, and four out of five do the opposite. So his thesis was that just start digging. So he was actually a proponent for just start digging. Human creativity will solve any drive into the bliss that the, uh, that the behavioral economists talk about exactly. And then you will have escalation of commitment because you'll have to, you'll have to finish the damn thing. And during that process, you'll realize that you actually have a lot of creativity that you didn't know that you had, and that will help solve the problem. Now, there's an element of truth in this, and there are beautiful examples of it working. And we actually mentioned several such examples in the book. I would say the Sydney Opera House is actually an example of Hirschman working. Like the Sydney Opera House, even with a, a giant cost overrun, it's made much more money for Sydney and Australia and given much more joy to people visiting than anybody could have ever hoped for when they started. So maybe just start digging was okay, except it kills the career of the architect, which was a fellow Dane, so I'm not happy about that, that this guy, Jörn Woodson, who was the architect of the Sydney Opera House, never got to do another major building. 
he actually withered away as the teaching assistant in Hawaii. Yeah. So not a good thing. But anyway, there are examples and it is, it's a good story. But if you relied on it consistently and say, hey, that's just how we do projects, you would actually end up losing and you would have huge waste. That's what our statistical analysis of 2000 plus projects show. So Hirschman was dead wrong on this point, even though he was right. And I, like you, I'm a great fan of his thinking. I've used his thinking in many other parts of my research where his idea was innovative and sound. In this case, they were innovative and unsound. Let's put it that way. Now, you spent some time talking about Terminal 5 at Heathrow, and you hold this up as a really good case study of successful execution of a large project. And there are like a million moving parts in this project. And there were tons of different contractors all involved in this thing. And how did something like that get done? I think you talk a lot about kind of the, there's a big human element, right? So it's not just about having the detailed plan. It's not just about having these inch stones, which I love this concept of the inch stone instead of the milestone. But th there seemed to be like a esprit de corps that was produced, which is lacking in many of these projects. I know my sister's an architect and she says the contractors and the architects, they're always bickering and the, the contractors and subcontractors are always bickering and there's always lawsuits and everything. If there were no lawsuits that came out of Terminal 5, I, I'd be incredulous. But what was the secret to getting this done on time and under budget? I actually don't think there were any lawsuits. There might have been some minor stuff, but nothing like what you usually see. Uh, I won't rule out that there was some minor stuff, but I haven't heard about it, but not the major things that you see on most projects. And this was very deliberate. They basically decided we don't want any lawsuits. So we're going to write the contracts in a way that makes it very unlikely that we get lawsuits, uh, where the owner, which was BAA, so the aviation organization that owned the airport and other airports in the UK at that time. And they said, we are going to take on the risk. We are not going to try to pass on the risk to the builders. We will actually, as an intelligent client, own the risk, and then we'll collaborate with the builders to solve problems as they arise, which they will, and they knew that. So it was a completely different approach and a completely different type of contract. It's called a partnering contract, where where partnering is the basis of the contract instead of this antagonistic relationship that most contract has, it specifies the responsibilities of different parties. And then as soon, sometimes actually long before you even start building, people start suing each other and, and pushing the responsibility around saying, this is not my responsibility because contracts always leave scope for interpretation. And then you would always try to argue that it's the other party's responsibility if it's a negative risk or a negative cost it's certainly not yours. So enormous amounts of time are spent on this kind of, of battle. Now, the owners of Terminal 5 decided we don't want that. We're using this other partnering approach, and they were completely consistent from contract to how they built the team. I happen to know the guy who was the project leader on this team, and we interviewed him intensively for the book. And he had this saying, his name is Andrew Walsenholm, and he's been a leader on many big projects uh, here in the UK. He uh, had a career in the military before he started doing projects. And he had this concept of the cap badge. Oh, in the UK military, there's a badge on your cap that says which company or division you are belonging to. And he said to everybody who got on the project, now you leave your cap badge at the door. There's only one cap badge here, and that's Terminal 5. I don't care which company you're working for, which contractor or which consultancy or whatever. Here, you're working for the Terminal 5 team. 
And we need everybody to understand this and work like this, not just as something we say, but something we actually feel and do. And he was so insistent on this and so intensive in working for it and all the way through, not just like saying it up front, but every day making sure that everybody was practicing what they were preaching. And they actually succeeded in this, that everybody felt that, hey, we are one team here and it doesn't matter which company I'm from. When I'm on the site for Terminal 5, I'm working for the Terminal 5 team and we are one team and that's it. And we solve problems together. And we give examples of in the book of how this happened. It's very different from reading stories from conventional construction sites that are run on the basis of conventional contracts. It's not that, that problems don't arise and contracts don't need to be solved, but the way you do it, it's very different. You're just going, hey, we are now, we are two or three parties to this problem and we need to collaborate in order to solve it. That's what we're doing. And we'll get additional money from the client. We know it's going to be more expensive. We're not going to fight over who's going to pay this, which, which will be the usual situation. We're just talking to the owner and say, hey, we need a hundred million more pounds in order to solve this problem. And they would get the money. There were money set aside for this. And it ended up making the project cheaper than it otherwise would have been. Well, it sounded like they also had something like a Kanban system in place where anybody who spotted a problem would feel comfortable escalating it, right? Yep, they had that too. And they, in general, they just took good care of their workers. Small things, you know, like if your safety glass is broke, you just get another one. And some sites that you get one set and that's your responsibility then. And if they break, you're going to get, have to get them yourself. Or if some of your equipment or clothing gets wet, you just go and get dry equipment. And again, on some sites, uh, on most sites, that's not the case. They don't have extra equipment like that for use at the whim of, uh, of the workers. But at T5, they had that. And, uh, you know, it meant that people felt really well taken care of. And that's actually given back as loyalty to the team of T5. So there was a real spirit of uh, we're in this together and we need to deliver this together and we want to be successful. That's what you want. Before the podcast, we were talking about how now most of your focus is on kind of IT projects. And in the book, most of it's about construction and large physical projects. But, you know, where the big capital investments are being made now are in these gigantic kind of cloud migrations and digital transformations and so forth. Can we just map over a, a lot of these insights onto, you know, IT projects? And I think hopefully you're having a new book come out on this, but is there anything that is different that we need to think about when we look at these digital projects? First, I want to emphasize that I'm not only interested in digital projects now. I'm just, I've turbocharged my research on digital projects because I think digitalization is one of the global trends that really matter. But I think that there are other trends that really matter. For instance, decarbonization. So I'm just as interested in decarbonization as I am in digitalization, just to take two major trends where trillions of dollars are actually being invested. And it's very important that we invest them right if we're not going to have humongous waste in society globally. But back to digital projects, the problem with digital projects is that they are the worst performing project type of any, and not just by a little, by far. Now, when you look at the fat tails on different project types, and, and we can show these in diagrams, you just have IT is completely out there with its own separate tail that no other project types or no other investment type comes even close to. IT is really risky and the, the risk is very specific. It's actually not, there's a lot of IT projects that actually deliver on schedule and on budgets, 
But when they go wrong, they go really wrong. And there's a large percentage, it's about 18% of IT projects totally blow out. They become what's called extreme values and extreme value theory. So they are far out on the curve in the Fed tail. And that's a lot. That's like, again, a one in five risk of ending up as one of these projects. Whenever you're doing an IT project, you actually have a risk of one in five for more than a 400% cost overrun when you do an IT project. And that's the average in the tail. So there are projects in the tail that will go even higher than the 400% cost overrun. So we're talking about real risk here. Now, we just talked about digitalization as a world trend. And I would argue that today, every project is increasingly becoming a digital project. Every project is increasingly becoming an IT project because we are building more and more IT into more and more projects. That's what's happening because of this global trend for digitalization. Well, given the fact that IT has the worst performance, it basically means that we are building ticking time bombs into all sorts of projects, whether they are water projects, energy projects, transportation infrastructure projects, mining projects, or aerospace projects, whatever. The more IT you put in, the more you destabilize these projects in the sense that they are likely to get very large blowouts. So that's an issue that we are researching and, and dealing with right now. And I think it's a major issue. Now, just to circle back to this book, Rationality and Power, you call for sort of a, a re-examination of politics, right? In the tradition of Machiavelli and Thucydides and Foucault. When you work on projects like the Hong Kong high-speed rail project, in the book, How Big Things Get Done, it, it, it seems like this is all about rationality and sitting down and thinking about planning and coming up with approaches to proper cost estimation, but there's a ton of politics involved here. Do you think that people who engage in these types of projects fail to adequately understand the way power is deployed in, in organizations and in political entities? And is that sort of one of the reasons why there are so many failures? Yeah, I do think so. And I think that it's less legitimate to talk about power than it is to talk about rationality. So it's much easier. And by the way, on a lot of the project types that we are talking about, including IT projects, a lot of the, there's a large dose of engineers. And of course, engineers are trained in rationality and talking about rationality and making their projects rational. But on the big projects, engineers are actually working in political organizations. And, and again, whether they are private businesses or public government, there's politics in both kinds of organizations. And that means that there's pressure to do things in certain ways, like we talked about earlier about there might be pressure on your budget that you can't actually publish too high a budget. It, it needs to be lower. And that's uh, not for rational reasons, it's for political reasons. So I find for myself and for my team, when we work on projects like the high-speed project in Hong Kong or, or the high-speed project in here in the UK, then, or any other project, it's really important to understand the politics. We simply cannot be effective if we don't understand the politics, even if we're not allowed to speak as directly and explicitly about it as we are about rationality, it's always in the background. And I'm really happy that I wrote the book, Rationality and Power. And I'm very pleased that you referred to it because that's a really old book. But to be honest, it was the most difficult book for me to write. It was really difficult to get my head around the interplay between rationality and power. And uh, it, it caused blood, sweat, and tears. And it's probably the, the book that I put the most work in of the 10 books that I've written. And also the one that I love the most, uh, obviously, I love how big things get done. 
very much. And it's much more powerful in the sense it's about the, the kind of stuff that we're doing in the world more directly and the, the stuff we're doing today. But hey, rationality and power was my first baby. And you know how you feel about firstborn. So that has a special place in my heart. So thanks for bringing it up. Power is important. Well, you know, in business schools, we now all have courses on power and politics, but I don't think they do in engineering schools. And I don't think they teach this stuff in your project management certification. <laughs> so I think we might want to think about importing some content related to organizations and power in that discipline. I agree. And not all business schools. I think the Stanford Business School is especially strong on power for historical reasons. And that's great in my view, but I, other business schools don't may have some, but not as much. And as you say, like in engineering, often they have never heard about power, which is a, a big drawback because if you're working on anything big, you are going to be in an organization, even small organization, there's power. Wherever people are gathering, there will be power issues. And if you haven't been trained in how to deal with them. I don't know how you can be effective in a power environment. Yeah, you have to understand things the way they are, <laughs> the way they work, and not necessarily the way they should. Ben, thank you so much for joining me. This new book, How Big Things Get Done, it's a really wonderful book, and I hope it gets incorporated into the curriculum of anything related to projects. Thanks so much. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Rick. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.